I want to encourage you to open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6 will be our passage this morning. In July of 2017, Canada's Governor General, a guy named David Johnston, had the privilege to meet the Queen of England. And during his meeting, they went walking down a little stairwell. And David Johnston, the general here, was concerned about the Queen's safety. There was no handrails, and he didn't want to see her fall down the stairs, and so he thought he would be a gentleman. And he took his right hand, and he placed it behind her left elbow to steady her, to keep her from falling. What he thought was an appropriate gesture of a gesture of a gentleman, was considered by many to be a severe breach of protocol. The BBC actually had an article, a news story about this breach of protocol. Their article was entitled, Regal Rules, the Do's and Don'ts for Meeting the Queen. Now, the Royals actually have a website. If if you have nothing else to do this afternoon, you can look up their website. And they actually have a webpage that will tell you what you should and should not do with the Queen. But I just want to use the BBC's article because they went into a little more detail. Here are some of the things you should not do when meeting the Queen. First, as we just heard, you should never touch the Queen. The Governor General of Canada breached this rule, and so did a First Lady of the United States several years ago. She put her arm around the Queen. You also should never start the conversation with the queen. When the queen comes to you, you are supposed to let her begin the conversation and you just respond. But you shouldn't start the conversation. And if you're going to be in conversation with the queen, make sure you keep it to small talk. No personal questions, please. And if you are at her home, you're in the palace, remember flashing cameras in her face is rude. Please do not take pictures of the queen in her home and do not take selfies with the queen. And finally, if you're going to leave the room, you always leave after the queen, and you never show your back to her. These are some of the rules they say you should not break when you're with the queen. They say you won't get banished from the kingdom if you do, but they would just encourage you to follow them. So what should you do when you meet the queen? Well, one thing you should do is if you're a lady, you should curtsy. If you're a man, you should bow your head when the queen approaches. If you're going to an event and you know the queen is going to be there, you need to arrive first. You need to make sure you're there when the queen gets there. You don't want to arrive after her. And then when you're there, you need to follow her lead. So if you're there for you know, dinner, you wait for the queen to be seated first, and then you may be seated. You don't start eating before the queen. And once you're seated, you don't stand up until the queen has stood up again. Now, these rules for us, seem a bit odd, a little disconnected for us. We don't follow these rules of etiquette for anyone else in our daily lives. So why is it traditional to do this for the queen? Why do you need to follow all these rules? Answer? Because she's the queen. She's not an ordinary person. She's not one of those common folk. She's elevated. She's exalted. She is royalty. And her position means that she should be esteemed and revered. 
You should enter into her presence with fear and with trembling. In the ancient world, you go into the presence of royalty, you could die for it. She is set apart. She is different. And that separation is expressed in how you address a member of royalty. That distinction between you and them is revealed in how you are supposed to speak to royalty. If you're going to go and speak to a prince or a princess, you don't just walk up and say, Hey, princess, how you doing? It's not appropriate. No, if you're going to speak to the prince or the princess, you say, Your Highness. But you certainly wouldn't say that to the queen because that would be a demotion for the queen. And so for the queen, you would say, Your Majesty. Majesty is a word that refers to the quality of being impressive or great. Someone or something that is majestic causes admiration and respect for its beauty. Someone who might say the sun rose this morning in all of its majesty. It's something that makes you stop and just sit there in awe. The majestic person has inherent qualities that set them apart, that makes them distinct from every other person. Those qualities make the majestic one worthy of admiration, worthy of respect, and worthy of awe and fear. That's the idea of holiness. It's the idea of being set apart, to be different, to be distinct from the things around you. You are not common or profane. You're separate. God is described in a similar way. Exodus 15, 11, in the Song of Moses. Moses writes, Who is like you among the gods, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders? He's majestic in holiness. He's majestic in the fact that he is set apart, that he is separate, that he is not like anything else in the universe. He says, who is like you among the gods? The answer there is nobody. He is separate. He is distinct. The false gods have a lot of similarities to each other. But none of them are like the God of heaven. The God of heaven is holy. He is set apart. And he is majestic in his holiness. You might say that means God is exalted above everything and everyone else. There is no one who comes close to God. He is above all of them. And it is that difference that makes him majestic. It is the difference between God and us that makes him worthy of our esteem and our love. It's because of his holiness that we should fear and revere him. J.I. Packer described the holiness of God this way. He said, The word holiness signifies everything about God that sets him apart from us and makes him the object of awe, adoration, and dread to us. Knowing God or even more relevant to our passage this morning, seeing God should inspire a feeling of reverential respect that is mixed not only with wonder and amazement, but mixed with dread and a fear. 
seeing how different and separate God is from you should humble you. Why? Because he is greater, he is bigger, he's stronger, he's smarter, he's more beautiful, he's more pure, he's more lovely, he is exalted far above you. I've entitled this sermon, Exalted in Holiness. It is the holiness of God that exalts him above everyone and everything else. In Isaiah 6, 1 through 7, Isaiah provides three ways that God is exalted in holiness so that you can be humbled before him. Let's begin by reading Isaiah 6, 1 through 7. Isaiah writes, In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out, while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. And your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. Let's begin with the first way that God is exalted in holiness. God is exalted above all authority. He is exalted above all authority. Look at verse 1. It says, in the year of King Uzziah's death, Isaiah begins by telling us when he had this vision. He had this vision in the year that King Uzziah died. That was somewhere around 740 B.C., plus or minus 10 years. They're not absolutely certain on the year. What do we know about Uzziah? Uzziah was, overall, he was a pretty good king. And he reigned for 52 years in Judah. Judah's the southern kingdom. Can you imagine having the same ruler for 52 years? And then he dies. And during his reign... He saw Judah's military, uh, military power and might grow. Under Uzziah, the, king of, uh, excuse me, the army of Judah swelled to over 300,000 soldiers. In 2 Chronicles, we learn that his fame spread afar, for he was marvelously helped until he was strong. Uzziah became a very powerful king, and he was known in, that, in the world for his power and his greatness. And that power and that fame went to his head. Second Chronicles 26, verse 16, he says, But when he became strong, his heart was so proud that he acted corruptly. You can read the story of his corrupt behavior in Second Chronicles 26, starting in verse 16. I don't have time to read the whole thing, but I'll summarize it for you. Uzziah thought that it would be a good idea for him to go to the temple and worship. 
And instead of asking the priest to submit an offering for him, he decided to go into the temple himself and try to offer incense in the sanctuary. Well, the priests weren't very happy about this. That was their job. And the priests come to Uzziah and they say, Uzziah, you've got to get out of here. You can't do this. And the Bible says that Uzziah became enraged. It doesn't say what he did in his rage, but I would imagine his face turned red, his veins started popping, and there was probably some yelling. And as he's enraged with the priest for telling him to leave, God strikes him with leprosy. And the Bible says leprosy broke out on his forehead. Now put yourself in the position of the priests. They went from, he's yelling at me, to, oh no, we have a problem. And they tell the king, you're, you've got leprosy on your forehead now. And it terrifies the king, and it terrifies the priests, and they all dart out of the sanctuary. 2 Chronicles 26, 21 says that Uzziah was a leper for the rest of his life. Completely cut off from the household of God. Uzziah didn't understand the holiness of God. In his pride and in his arrogance, he thought that God was just like him. That God was just like any other king that Uzziah could just trounce into his presence and do as he pleased. He thought that as a king, he had the authority to walk into God and do what he wants. And he was wrong. In that same year that Uzziah dies, the prophet Isaiah is welcomed into the presence of God. Into the heavenly throne room. And he, is, he receives a vision, not of the earthly temple, but of the heavenly temple. Verse 1 again, he says, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. Isaiah sees God sitting on a throne, and he calls him Lord. This is not the name Yahweh. If you notice in your Bibles, it's lowercase o, lowercase r, lowercase d. This is the name Adonai. Yahweh is God's name. Adonai is a title. Just as we have presidents, you can say President Abraham Lincoln. President is the title. Abraham is his name. Adonai is a title. It refers to sovereignty. You might say it refers to the sovereign master. It means that God has supreme authority. That he is the ultimate authority that is exalted above all other authorities. Isaiah sees Adonai sitting on the throne, and it's a throne of a king. It's the throne of a monarch. The sovereign master reigns from heaven on a throne, reigning as a monarch. And Isaiah describes the Lord as being lofty and exalted. The first term here, lofty, you can also translate that as high or exalted. It refers to his rank. It refers to him being the highest rank. He is exalted above all other ranks. There is no one with a superior rank than he. All others are inferior to him. 
He reigns and he rules over every prince, every princess, every queen, every king, every president, prime minister, the Congress, the Supreme Court. He is over them all. And he exercises his authority without any external restraint. No one can stay his hand. Nobody can stop him or tell him what he must do. Psalm 135, verse 6, Whatever the Lord pleases, he does, in heaven and in earth, in the seas and in all the, deep, in all the deeps. The idea of supreme authority is expressed in Deuteronomy 10, verse 17. Moses writes, For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords. He is the God that is above all other gods. He is the master above all other masters, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God. You see, his authority is exalted above all other authorities. It is higher than all other rulers. He is lofty. The second term, what the NASB translates as exalted, doesn't refer to his rank. It refers to geography, his physical positioning to Isaiah. It's the Hebrew word nasah. I told this in an equipping class recently. Nassau, if you spelt it in English, it's N-A-S-A, or as we say in English, NASA. And it means to lift up, to lift something up. NASA lifts things up. That's how I remembered it in seminary. The Lord is sitting on a throne and he is lifted up. Isaiah has to look up to see him. So if we're just talking geography, the Lord is exalted not only above Isaiah in heaven, but he's exalted above the entire universe. He's over everything physically. Again, indicating his authority. And from there he reigns. Into verse 1, with the train of his robe filling the temple. The train of the robe refers to the hem of the robe. The king would always have the longest robe. His robe was an indicator of his power. It was an indicator of his stature. You didn't want to show up to the party with a longer robe than the king. He might be a little upset with you. The king's robe filled the entire temple. There was no room for anyone else. There was no space for another authority. Verse 1 pictures God as the supreme sovereign ruler who is exalted above every other authority. He exceeds all authorities in power, in control, in influence, and in every way imaginable. This sets him apart. It's one of the reasons Moses described him as being majestic in holiness, deserving of awe and fear and reverence. Just consider, I'm going to give you a couple examples, just consider some of the differences between God and an earthly king. All earthly kings inherit their kingdoms. Their authority is always given to them. Some, like the Queen of England, inherit their authority based on their blood and their lineage. She's queen because her parents were queen and she was next in line. Some acquire their authority through elections. We see that here in the U.S. Presidents acquire their authority through an election. Others acquire their kingdom through military conquests. Look at Alexander the Great. 
conquered the known world, and when he went into Egypt, what'd they do? They made him king. They made him a pharaoh. Others become king through political intrigue and assassination. Read through 2 Kings. The northern kingdom of Israel had this problem quite a bit. But all of them, without exception, receive their authority. And all of them, without exception, receive their authority from God. Romans 13, verse 1, For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. The kings of Israel, Saul, David, and Solomon, all of them, without exception, received their throne from God. Earthly kings have derived authority. God's authority is not derived. He didn't get it from someone else. He didn't earn it. He didn't win it. God did not receive his authority. He possesses his authority by virtue of his own nature. He is omnipotent. That means he has the power to do whatever he desires. And there is no one who has more power than God. He can do and accomplish whatever he wants. No one can stop him from acting. No military can overthrow him. No one can remove him from his throne. He is the most powerful king in existence. He is omnipotent, but he is also omniscient. He has perfect knowledge. He'll never be outsmarted. He'll never be tricked. He'll never be deceived into giving up his authority. No one will ever be wiser than he is. Do you know what you have when you have a God who's omnipotent and omniscient? A God who has all knowledge and all power? You have a sovereign God. You have a God that cannot be moved by anything in this world. Therefore, he is unique. He is distinct. He is set apart. He is holy. And he is exalted above all authority. Another example. Earthly kings rule over finite kingdoms. The boundaries, the borders of those kingdoms are fixed. And they're fixed, yes, one, through military conquest, but ultimately they are fixed because God appoints those borders. And he establishes those nations. Acts 17, verse 26. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitations. The authority of earthly kings is limited by geographic borders. The president of the United States has no authority in Canada. No earthly king ever ruled the entire globe, even though a lot of them tried. But God's authority is not limited to boundaries. God's authority is universal. He reigns and rules over the universe. He rules over all of creation. The authority of earthly kings is limited to regulating only the actions of their citizens. Kings can't control your thoughts and your desires. But God does. Psalm 7, verse 9, O let the evil of the wicked come to an end, but establish the righteous. For the righteous God tries the hearts and the minds. He rules over all of creation, and he even rules what's going on in your head. When it comes to authority, God is in a category all by himself. No one 
has authority as great and as powerful as him. This is a characteristic of his holiness. It's what sets him apart. It's what makes him an object of awe and adoration. God is exalted in holiness above all authority. Secondly, God is exalted in holiness above all creation. That is to say, God is unlike anything in the creation. There's nothing in the creation you can point to and say, God is like that. God is infinitely above his creation. It's not just that he's better. He's infinitely superior in every way. The chasm between us and God is so great that you cannot fathom the difference. Look at verse 2. Seraphim stood above him. This is the only passage of Scripture that actually mentions the seraphim by name. There's other passages that refer to them, but they just don't name them. This is a unique class of angels. They sit and they dwell in the presence of God himself, and they minister at his throne. There's another class of angels called cherubim who also minister in the throne room of God. And the seraphim are some amazing, amazing angels. The name seraphim, it could refer to a snake. It's used in uh, numbers to refer to the, the serpents. But here that doesn't really work because they have feet. And so I don't think that's what this means. But the name seraphim also refers to burning ones. Burning ones. Why would they be called burning ones? Ezekiel also had a vision of heaven. And he saw the cherubim. And his description of the cherubim might be helpful to us as we consider why seraphim are called burning ones. Ezekiel 1, he's describing the cherubim. He says, In the midst of the living beings, there was something that looked like burning coals of fire. Like torches darting back and forth among the living beings. The fire was bright and lightning was flashing from the fire. The angels are described as burning coals with lightning and fire. Burning ones describes this bright, brilliant light that they are emitting. The psalmist describes the angels who serve God in heaven. Psalm 104, verse 4, he makes the winds his messengers, flaming fire his ministers. They emit this dazzling light. And Isaiah can only find one word to describe it, and he calls it fire. And God designed these creatures to do their task, to do the work that he wants them to do, to serve him in the temple. God designed you to do certain things. He gave you two legs. He wants you to walk. He designed fish to swim, so he gave them fins. He gave these angels six wings. And he gave them six wings for a reason. This is verified in Revelation 4, verse 8. John describes the seraphim. He says, In the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings are full of eyes, Around and within. The eyes all around and within refers to superior knowledge and intellect. These beings are very, very smart. Their ability to think is not diminished by sin. They are highly intelligent. They think clearly and logically. 
So why do they have four wings? Verse 2 again. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. He groups these wings into groups of two. And one set of wings is for exactly what you think it would be for. It's for flying. Isaiah here in verse 2 says they stood above him. It's not saying that they were standing on their feet. They were flying. They just weren't moving. You might say they were hovering. So with two, they fly. And with the other two sets of wings, they cover themselves. They cover their feet, and they cover their face. Now, some say, well, they cover their face because they're in the presence of God and the glory of God. They can't really look upon God. Moses, when he was on the mountain, said, God, let me see your glory, and God had to hide him behind the cleft of the rock. God's glory is immense, and these angels may not be able to take a full dose of the glory of God at once. But I don't think that's the primary reason they're covering their face and their feet. They were designed by God to dwell in his presence, to dwell in the midst of his glory. So, covering. People covering themselves in the presence of God is not unusual. Moses, in Exodus 3, hid his face from Yahweh. Why did he hide his face? For he was afraid to look at God. Adam and Eve, when they recognized their sin, they hid from God. They made a covering and then they hid behind a tree. But in both of these examples, Moses, Adam and Eve, they both had sin. Seraphim aren't sinners. They have no sin. They are, in fact, holy. So why do they need to cover themselves? They need to cover themselves because while they are holy, they are not holy as God is holy. They are not perfect as God is perfect. Job 4.18, he puts no trust even in his servants, and against his angels he charges error. That is to say, the angels are mere creatures. As exalted as they are above what we would think, if, they, if one of these angels showed up here, we would all be on the floor in terror. As exalted as they are, they are mere creatures. They are still part of creation. And God is categorically and infinitely superior to them. And in his presence, they are humbled. And they cover themselves in humility. Notice verse 3 what they say about God's holiness. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. I want to start at the end of that. The whole earth is full of his glory. The whole earth points to the glory of God. It's kind of this idea of Romans 1. You can look at creation and see the majesty of God. But they describe God not as being holy. Not even as being holy, holy. But he is holy, holy, holy. And that repetition is important. When Jesus wanted his listeners to pay attention, how did he start the sentence? Truly, truly, 
The double repetition makes, makes the statement emphatic. You need to listen to what I'm about to say. The angels turn around and they don't say holy, holy. They use it three times in a row. And it goes from being emphatic to being a superlative. This is perfect holiness. The holiness of God supersedes that of angels. It excels that of the saints. It is infinite, original, perfect, pure, eternal, and it is unique. By a superlative, we just mean it, it goes beyond our ability to truly describe the holiness of God. It is exponentially and infinitely greater than any of his creatures. Let me say it another way. You are not like the seraphim. In some sense right now, the seraphim are exalted above you. So you go from you, you were made a little lower than the angels, you take a step up, you go up to the seraphim. And if you were to see a seraphim today, you would be in awe. You would be amazed. You ever wonder why the angels always tell people, do not be afraid? Because seeing an angel is a terrifying thing. You realize just how weak and helpless you are in their presence. But you go a step up from the angels. The angels are in the presence of God, and they have that reaction to God. In his presence, I can do nothing. He is so much greater than the angels, than you, than I. And he is beyond our ability to grasp his nature. Why did the seraphim cover themselves in the presence of God? Because they realize that they are mere creatures. And God is infinitely, majestically exalted above them. And by covering themselves, they just demonstrate humility. It's a recognition of that infinite gap that exists between the creator and the creation. And that gap, that distance between God and his creation is illustrated in the very next verse. Verse 4. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. The foundations of the thresholds uh, refers to the doors and the sprockets, or the, the hinges. The doors were shaking. The temple was shaking, and as it shook, the hinges and the doors would rattle. So put yourself in Isaiah's shoes. First, you see the Lord. He's sitting on a throne. He's lofty and exalted. Then you see the seraphim, and they're hiding their face. And as they hide their face, they're singing, Holy, holy, holy is Lord God Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And then while all that's happening, the whole temple begins to tremble and shake. And you hear the doors rattling. And if that wasn't enough, then the whole temple begins to fill with smoke. That's a terrifying image. And in fact, the term he uses here for tremble, referring to the temple trembling, it's the same word he uses to describe men who shake and tremble in the presence of God. 
One person said the temple was shaking in fear of Yahweh. The same thing happened in, on Mount Sinai in the book of Exodus. Moses brings the people to the base of the mountain. God appears on the mountain, Exodus 19. Now Mount Sinai was full, excuse me, Mount Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. And its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace. And the whole mountain quaked violently. Exodus 19.18 Even the mountains shake and tremble in the presence of a holy God. A God that is infinitely greater than they are. Isaiah said in verse 4 that the temple trembled and filled with smoke. The, The smoke here functions as a barrier to separate Isaiah from God. To illustrate just how far and distant he is from God. In 1 Kings 8, 10, and 11, we have something very similar. The the temple filled with smoke, and it prevented the priests from going in. They couldn't go in and minister. And here that smoke graphically illustrated the difference between Isaiah and Yahweh. It reaffirms to him that God is exalted far above every creature, including the seraphim and Isaiah. I can't help but think Isaiah felt like a tiny little ant, and God was this massive giant. When you see God rightly, you're going to feel that infinite gap God will appear as being massive. He will appear to be so far and so distant from you, and you will feel weak and helpless. And this is the cure to all boasting and pride. If I might give an example, when I was a kid, Michael Jordan was in his prime. How many of you would be willing to go to Michael Jordan and brag about your skills in basketball? I wouldn't. It would be pretty silly. Well, if that's silly, how much more ridiculous is a boastful or proud person in the eyes of God? You were made from dust. You are dirt and water. Let me rephrase that. You're animated mud. Everything you have was given to you. It was given to you by God. And compared to God, you and I are dirt. And I'm not trying to diminish being made in the image of God. Don't misunderstand. But don't avoid the obvious conclusion that when you compare yourself to God, you are nothing. When you see God rightly, you will see yourself correctly. That's what happened with Isaiah. He saw God for the first time without the theology, without all the the concepts, and he finally realized what it meant when it said God was holy. The Jews knew that God was holy. But Isaiah saw God And he realized for the first time who he really was. Not who God really was, but who Isaiah really was. This brings us to the third way that God is exalted in holiness. 
We've seen that God is exalted above authority. God is exalted above all creation. God, the third one, God is exalted above all sin. Look at verse 5. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined. I am ruined. You could say I am shattered. I'm destroyed. I'm coming apart at the seams. Isaiah is disintegrating. He's on the verge of complete destruction. And because he's about to be destroyed, he says, Woe is me. He uses this term woe quite a bit. We don't have time to go through all, this, all of them, but every time he uses it, it's always in the negative. In Isaiah chapter 5, verse 21, he says, Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes. Isaiah 5.22, woe to those who are heroes in drinking wine. Isaiah 10, verse 1, woe to those who enact evil statutes. The woe was a pronouncement of judgment. It was pronouncing a curse. Isaiah did this quite a bit. He pronounced judgment on the nation. He pronounced judgment on sinners. That was the job of a prophet, to pronounce judgment of God. And now, standing before Yahweh, Isaiah pronounces another curse. Only this time, he's not pronouncing the curse on someone else. He's announcing a curse on himself. Woe is me. In seeing God rightly for the first time, he saw himself rightly for the first time. Isaiah was confident that God's judgment was about to fall on him. And what was his great sin? Was he an idolater? Was he a drunkard? Was he practicing immorality? What could this great prophet of God have done to deserve this judgment? To deserve to be disintegrated before God? Why would God destroy him? Verse 5 again. Because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. There's his crime. Unclean lips. Isaiah had said some things that were not proper. We're not told what he said. But he recognized that his speech has been sinful, and it was a violation and offense to a holy God. In our world today, saying impure stuff isn't a big deal. And most people today would say, God doesn't really care about what you say. Isaiah has a very different opinion. And for that, he says, I am ruined. I'm destroyed. Turn over real quick to Psalm 15, because... God's standard for entering into his presence is really high. And we need to understand that standard is really high. It's as high as God is exalted above you. He has no tolerance for sin. And he has no tolerance for sin coming into his presence. Psalm 15 is written by King David. Need I remind you, King David was the guy who stole another man's wife and then murdered him. And King David starts his psalm with a question. Two questions, actually. O Lord, who may abide in your tent? 
who may dwell on your holy hill. The reference to the tent here likely refers to the tabernacle in the wilderness where God's presence was. The hill likely refers to Mount Sinai, again, where God's presence was. He's not merely asking who can go into your presence for a few moments and then leave. The Hebrew text makes it clear. He's asking, Lord, who can go into your presence and stay there? Who can live there in your presence? We don't have time to look at the entire psalm, but I do want to draw your attention to verse 2 and 3. Who can be in his presence? He who walks with integrity and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart. He does not slander with his tongue. Someone who has pure speech. Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. An impure heart produces impure speech. A pure heart produces pure speech. You can go back to Isaiah 6. Those who have a pure heart, and consequently a pure mouth, can dwell in the presence of Yahweh. But Isaiah is a man of unclean lips. His heart is not pure, and he knows it. He, unlike God, he is not fully separated from his son. And now he's in the presence of a thrice holy God, a God whose presence is shaking the temple, whose presence angels are hiding from. And this gives him a clear sight and recognition of how sinful he really is. Notice the end of verse 5. What brought about this realization? What gave him this insight about himself? Into verse 5, For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. When you see God rightly, when you truly draw near to God, you will see more of your own sin. Isaiah was a prophet. He was a man of God. And he, he draws closer to God, and the first thing he sees is his own sinfulness. Whenever someone tells you, look, I'm drawing closer to God, I'm in the Bible, I'm praying, I'm doing all these things, my relationship with God has never been better. And then you ask them, how much sin do you see in your life? You know if they're drawing close to God or not. Because if they're truly drawing close to Him, they will see more and more sin. Repentance will be on their lips. Prophet Isaiah drew near to God. One of the first results of that was a recognition of his own sinful state. Remember what Peter said in Luke 5? He realized who Jesus was and he said, Lord, depart from me. I am a sinful man. If your relationship with sin hasn't changed, you have not drawn closer to God. You've only been hardened in your religion. God's holy presence is light. It exposes sin. He realizes his sin wasn't minor. It was cosmic treason. And he realized his penalty was going to be equally severe. 
and that realization broke him. If the rest of this, this vision didn't break him and humble him, this did. This was the final straw. All pride, all self-confidence, all trust in his own works and merits, all of that was gone. He stood before God, morally naked and exposed, broken and humbled. And this is exactly what God wanted from him. David in Psalm 51 said, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. True revelation of God is intended to break you and humble you over your sin so that you will turn back to him mourning. Jesus said in Matthew 5, Blessed are those who mourn over sin. In his brokenness and mourning, Isaiah confessed his sin. He acknowledged to God the punishment he deserved, and then he sat there and he waited for a response. That must have been a long wait, even if it was a mere moment. Knowing he deserved judgment. We don't know how long it took, but finally something happened. Verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. God sends him a seraphim. The seraphim was designed and created to serve Yahweh. It was designed to minister to Yahweh. And now Yahweh sends his minister to serve and to minister to the broken, sinful Isaiah. And the seraphim flies to him with a pair of tongs. And in that pair of tongs, he's holding a burning coal. And I've read people say, well, it wasn't really a hot coal. Okay, he was using tongs for a reason. It is a hot coal. It's described as being a burning coal. And he approaches Isaiah with his hot burning coal. So hot, even the seraphim doesn't want to pick it up with his hands. And he moves this coal to his lips. Verse 7, he touched my mouth with it. He pressed it to my lips the most sensitive part of your human body. And while searing his lips with the coal, the angel said, verse 7, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. Those last two statements, your iniquity is taken away, you can translate that as your guilt has been turned away. You're no longer guilty. It's been removed. Moments ago, you were guilty in the court of God. You are no longer guilty now. And he says, and your sin was forgiven. In the Hebrew, your sin has been atoned for. You have been exempted from punishment. You have been made right with God. how those words must have caused so much joy and worship in Isaiah. To go from being humbled, broken, and condemned, sure that you're about to be destroyed, to hearing the seraphim, the minister of God, say your sins are forgiven and your guilt has been removed. The burning coal was a picture of God 
reconciling the sinner to himself, cleansing him, washing his sin away, enabling him for service, the service that he would be called to do later in the chapter. What did Isaiah do to deserve this? What did he do to earn this gift? What secret words did he say to compel God to act in such a merciful way? What great works of piety could he present to God to get God to cleanse him like this? Nothing. There was nothing he could do, and he knew it. Which is why the only words he said was, I'm about to be destroyed, I've seen the king, and I'm a sinner. He stood before God as a sinner, condemned, broken, humbled, expecting to die. But God, who is rich in mercy, spared him. He provided Isaiah a way of escape, a means by which he could be purified and accepted in the throne room of God. Unearned, unmerited, pure grace. And God has provided the same thing to you this morning. If you're broken over your sin, if you hate your sin, if you have seen that God is holy, 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 and you are not, if the Spirit of God has worked in you a fear of God and a hatred of sin, then you too can be cleansed. You too can have your sins atoned for. There is one thing I have not told you about this passage, because it's not actually in this passage. It's in John chapter 12. In John 12, he answers a question. Just who is this person sitting on this throne? He's called Adonai. Who is it? John 12, verse 41, the Apostle John is speaking. And he quotes several passages about God's judgment on Israel. But I want you to hear what John says about Isaiah's prophecies including Isaiah chapter 6. These things Isaiah said because he saw his glory, speaking of Jesus. And he spoke of him. The him here is Christ. Who did Isaiah see sitting on a throne? High and lifted up exalted above all authority, exalted above all creation, exalted above all sin. Who was this person? It was Christ. Who was the one who sent the hot coal as a picture of forgiveness and atonement? It was Christ. Isaiah had a vision of the pre-incarnate Christ. And it's through that same person that you too can receive grace and mercy. If you're broken over your sin. If you're willing to go to him and confess your sin as being grave and severe and worthy of his ultimate judgment. If you're willing to give up on you. If you're willing to give up on your works, on your righteousness, on your effort, on your achievements. If you're willing to give up on you. If you're willing to die. Because you hate your sin and you realize you can do nothing. 
A broken and contrite heart he will not despise. Jesus said, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your souls. There is a holy, holy, holy God who is infinitely above you. And that God has made provision for you to dwell with him in eternity if you would just turn and trust in him. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you so much for Christ. We thank you for the gospel. It's the power of God unto salvation. We thank you for your word, that you have uh, given us your word, not merely to be a handbook for life, but uh, your word is given to us to reveal you, so that we may come to know you and to see you as clearly as Isaiah saw you. Father, we just ask that you would humble us all, that we would come to the point of revering you, adoring you, being in awe of you, that we would not treat you as being common or profane. Lord, you know everyone in this room. You know who is yours and who is not. You know those who have truly professed faith in Christ and those who haven't. And Father, we just ask that you would use your word and your spirit to convict those who have not that they would come to a saving knowledge of Christ. And we ask this in his name. Amen.